Really? It's a quiet group. You're like, what was that? Baptism. You're all going to get baptized. Hey, um, I just got to go through a couple things, uh, some pretty important things. Uh, Many of you know uh, or have heard uh, one of our very own uh, went home to be with the Lord just over a week ago, Alex Adams, who uh, sat with those rowdy guys in the back row. Um, I'm sure you're missing your buddy. And uh, also worked the door as an usher and greeter, a faithful servant. Um, Yeah. Very sad. Uh, but here's the deal. The family uh, wanted a small service, so we really couldn't promote it. But we uh, will, when the time is right, when the family's ready, have some sort of uh, time where we can just gather together and just honor Alex and his uh, faithfulness and his friendship to many of us. But in the meantime, I just encourage you to be praying for his kids, praying for his family, uh, praying for the guys in the back row who I know are grieving, uh, their their close buddy who was always back there with them. So uh uh, we just, we love you, Alex, and uh, we're going to miss you. Yeah, amen. Uh, a couple other quick things. The toy drive, which I'm sure when you came in, it'd be hard to miss all the toys out there. Uh, the toy drive is in honor of little Jake Pinar, who passed away just over a year ago as a way of blessing Children's Hospital, which was such a blessing to Jake and his family. Uh, this is something that Jake wanted to do, the toy drive, and so they set a goal to get 2,021 uh, toys, and they actually are now right at the edge of 3,000 toys, which is awesome. Uh, so the new goal was 3,021, but I think we should do 5,021. So we got two more weeks. Uh, bring in some toys. If you would rather just uh, give financially, then they've been allowing Stacy, their daughter, to do all the shopping, which has really been fun to watch. Have you seen it on Facebook? Uh, nothing like a seven or eight-year-old running through buying any toys she wants to buy on your dime, uh, but she certainly has enjoyed it. And then all the toys go to Children's Hospital. Somebody asked me how that works, and the way it works in the hospital is based on the level of procedure that the child gets, they get a toy. So if they get a shot, maybe they get a small toy. If it's something more invasive, they get a bigger toy. So the hospital categorizes all those, keeps them in their warehouse, brings them in in a cart, just gives the kids uh, a smile, uh, something to look forward to, something to hold on to. It's a beautiful thing. So you should definitely clap for that. It's very... Yeah, so they, they've even talked about having to find more space to hold all the toys, which I love that. Uh, I want to let you know that when you leave today, they're going to give you a bookmark. And that's for the, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> the six big messages that we've been talking about throughout the series. But I thought it might make it easier. The, the messages are right on there. Um, you can be looking for those as you're reading through uh, the Minor Prophets. And before we get to the, our Minor Prophet today, I got one more announcement. And I've been trying to dreading this one. Uh, but we have some dear friends who have been called to a new service. So if uh, you guys want to come on up, this is Fit Gray and Lakeisha Prince. So I didn't catch it. Four years? Have you been here four years? Uh, three years. Three years. So I remember uh, Fick Ray and I had a chance to meet in my office before they decided to uh, make the move and come hang out with us. And uh, I knew right away uh, he's an extremely gifted, talented young man. Um, but I remember what I told you, which was I think the Lord just wants you to hang out and heal. And don't worry about getting plugged in too fast. Just take your time. Let the Lord do what he needs to do and bring some healing from some of the stuff that you guys have gone through, some of the hurtful events that had gone on, and uh, the Lord did that, and eventually you did start to serve, and we are grateful for that. Those of you who remember, we've uh, 
had him singing up here, preaching up here. Keisha, you've had a big impact in, as well. Um, but the Lord has called them to pastor Woodside, Detroit. So, Woo! so he's abandoning me. No. Uh, and we just want to bless him. We want to send him one thing that we've said uh, for years is if God is nudging you uh, to be with the princes and what they're doing downtown, we want you to be where God wants you to be. And if that's downtown, that's great. Um, it's all kingdom. And so uh, we wanted to make sure we took the time to recognize him just because he's been up here on the stage to pray over him. And so we're going to do that. But I think he wants to share a quick word by him the first service. He's a pastor. You got to be quick. That's always dangerous to give a pastor a mic. Now, um, just as I was saying in the uh, the nine o'clock, um, this really has just been a, a, a refreshing for my wife and I, for our kids uh, to be here at Grace. And, and Doug, you have been a great example of a pastor and a great friend, a great pastor to me, uh, exactly friend. who I needed um, in these moments. And I appreciate all your words. And, and Meg, your comfort and love for our family has just been a tremendous blessing. But I would say this as a whole, Grace, from the first day we walked into this church, we were greeted with open arms, literally Jen Rocchio's open arms, who wrapped us up and and gave us a hug. And we just felt loved and comforted uh, from that day, received on the worship team. Uh, Every time I spoke, received by you as a church. I love this church, and I can't tell you, um, there is a bittersweetness to this, uh, to leaving uh, this place that has meant so much to us. Uh, but also knowing that this is the work of the Lord. So thank you, Grace, for uh, res- being gracious to our family. Uh, and thank you, Doug, for being a great pastor to we us. We love you. We love you. Meg's going to pray over you. Um, but we just want to pray a blessing, and we want to send them with our blessing. Uh, it's all kingdom, and that's what we're up to here. Yeah, we're really proud of you guys, and just so honored to have spent some time with you over the last few years. Yeah, it's been awesome. Father, I thank you so much for Fikre and for Lakeisha. And I thank you for the anointing that you have placed on their lives to shepherd the Woodside flock in downtown Detroit. And I just thank you for what an honor it has been to have them here as part of our family for what for us was too brief a time. But I thank you that you are faithful, and I have watched them and their faithfulness, and they have been waiting um, while they were here, allowing you to do a healing work in them and uh, waiting for your invitation for what's next. And so I thank you for what you have for them downtown, for them, for their children, um, and I... Uh, I'm just so excited to see what you're going to do through them. And so, Father, I know that all they do, they will do it to bring glory to you. And we thank you that your hand of blessing is on them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. And, thank you, guys. Yeah. I do love you. Love you. Thank you. And as I said in the first service, you're dead to me. He knows that's not true. We will uh, continue to journey together and encourage one another. Hey, uh, week three of the series we've called Timeless Messages from the Ancient Prophet. Uh, if there's one thing I want you to glean from this is that the messages of God to the people in difficult seasons 3,000 years ago are the message to the people of God today. There are so many rich things that we can glean from these prophets. So grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Jonah. Jonah, you probably remember it if you grew up in the church as a kid's story, but there's a lot more to it than just a kid's story. 
Uh, as you are looking for it, I want to give you a little bit of the, the context, a little bit of the setting. Uh, this story is a historical event. Jesus, or Jonah, is in fact a real person. The events of the story actually happened. I know that they're, they're wild. I know that they're crazy. But Jonah actually lived in a town near Nazareth. He actually grew up in the, in the kingdom. And he, he actually did the things that we read about in the story. And one of the things I would say to you is Jesus, in his ministry, refers to Jonah and refers to the ministry of Jonah as a historical fact. And if Jesus teaches, treats it as a historical fact, then we ought to do the same. Amen? So, last week we looked at the book of Hosea. If you remember, we talked about Hosea and Gomer. And what I want you to know that Hosea and Jonah, they're contemporaries. Actually, Amos is also a contemporary of theirs. But it's pretty good odds Hosea and Jonah knew each other. They were probably well acquainted with each other and knew each other's ministry. And there's a lot of relevance to knowing that because... What's happening here and what Jonah is being called, he would have known about the prophecies that we read about last week, the prophecies of Assyria and the prophecies of what's going to happen to the northern kingdom. And in the book of Jonah, we see Jonah being told to go on a mission of mercy. Don't miss this. He is being sent on a mission of mercy to a group of people that God has already said this group of people is going to bring about the destruction of the northern kingdom. I just want that to sink in for a minute. Jonah is being sent on a mission of mercy to the very people that God has already said are going to come back and wipe out your friends and your family and take thousands of your people back to uh, Assyria as exiles, right? A few other fun facts about the book of Jonah before we jump into it. Uh, of all the minor prophets, he's the only one that uh, gears his message towards the Gentile people. We're going to see that in just a minute. Uh, Jonah is comical in the way he behaves, and uh, he's the most disobedient, the most uh, defiant of all the prophets, but he is also considered one of the most successful, the screw-up of screw-ups, but also incredibly successful. And for somebody like me, that's very reassuring. You can be a screw-up and God can still use you. Jonah is also the only minor prophet uh, that Jesus associates himself with. So if you remember, Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah and that that will be what lets them know who Jesus actually is. Um, If you haven't already done so, I want to encourage you to sit down and read through the story of Jonah in one sitting. It is a literary masterpiece there, 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 it is so full of colorful language. It is, it is one of those books that if you read it and engage your imagination, you will feel the storm. You will feel the, the fear that's on the ship when the storm's coming. You will, you will feel the, the depths of the water as, as Jonah is sinking. But so colorful is the language. There's one point in there where he says as he was sinking... He sank to the roots of the mountain. Think about that, the depth of the sea. But there's this beautiful, colorful language. And it's a a brilliant story of the plight of of humankind and and God's God's desire to reach mankind. It's just, it's a beautiful story to read. But sit down and read it in one sitting. If you haven't done it already, especially after this message, it'll it'll kind of bring some things to life and help you to uh, grab all that God has for you. Hopefully... excuse me, you found Jonah by now. I encourage you to keep it open even after we read the opening passage because I'm going to hit a few passages from every one of the chapters in Jonah. So please stand up with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Jonah chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. 
Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amate, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it for their evil. Some of your translations probably say for their trouble, which is interesting how different those two things read. For their evil or for their trouble has come up before me. But Jonah rose to, to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship that was going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Lord, I pray that in these next few minutes that you would uh, awaken our spirit to what you have for us in the book of Jonah. I pray that each person in this room, each person on this, in this broadcast would hear a word from you. Not a word from Doug, not a word that Evie sang, but a word from the Spirit of God. And they would leave different than they came because they've had that interaction with the living God. Lord, I pray that you would grow us more and more into the image of your Son, that you would use this wild and crazy story to awaken our hearts, to awaken our minds, and to draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Opening verse. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amate, saying. So Jonah, the son of Amate. Jonah means dove, and Amate means truth. So I love it that Jonah is called the dove of truth. He is the messenger of truth. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amate, saying, Arise, something that Jonah's going to hear over and over throughout this story. Arise, go to Nineveh, to the great city, call out against it for evil, or as I said, trouble has come up before me. Now, it's probably not a spoiler alert to tell you that Jonah doesn't go. Immediately, if you read it and the way that it's written, immediately he declines the invitation, right? And he, and he heads in the opposite direction. Now, later, Jonah is going to tell God, the reason I ran, the reason I didn't go when you first asked me, is I knew you were going to be merciful. I knew you were going to be good to those people. And really, the sermon this morning isn't about those people, but I will tell you, there is a warning in the book of Jonah whenever we have in our spirit an attitude towards those people. Right, even when you just, even as I'm saying it, so maybe it's those people that wear green and white, <laughs> right? That's the easy one, but maybe it's those people that vote this way or those people that vote that way. When we have that angst and we, and we say to ourselves, not those people, God, don't be merciful to those people. So, so Jonah is saying, I don't want you to be merciful, but I think you can make a case that he was also probably a wee bit nervous about going into this city and, and speaking out against them. Nineveh is a rapidly growing, huge city. It's not the capital of Assyria yet, but it will be. Uh, Assyria hasn't quite risen to their full uh, potential or their, their full dominance. It's going to come, but it's already got a, a rough reputation, right? And as I said a few minutes ago, it's already been prophesied that this is the nation that will bring annihilation to the northern kingdoms. So it would make sense that Jonah's a bit scared or nervous. I tried to think of what this would be like, and the only thing I could think of is this would be like saying to a Jewish person living in relative safety in the Americas in the 1930s, go to Germany and cry out against Hitler, right? That would be a good way to get killed. 
But you wouldn't blame the person if they said to themselves, I'm not sure those people deserve mercy. After all of their atrocities, after all they're doing, I'm not sure those, beware in your spirit when you feel a sense of those people. So let's not be too critical of Jonah and realize that there's a lot going on here for reasons for why he would decline the offer to go to Nineveh. Jonah says no, he runs and he tries to hide. Look at verse three, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Some of your translations, to flee the face of the Lord. Jonah wants to get far away from his calling and the one who's calling him as he can, right? This is what we do. When we are disobedient, we hide. We, we try to hide from the face of God, hide from the presence of God. What did Adam do when Adam sinned in the garden? He, in his shame, he tried to hide from God. But Jonah's going to learn firsthand that the psalmist was right when he wrote, Where shall I go from your spirit? Oh, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you're there. And if I make my bed and shoal, you are there. So in his disobedience, Jonah runs. The text is so creative in the original language. The way he, it's, it's drawn out is there's this picture. As he runs, he keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper. Verse 3 says he goes down to Joppa. And then it says he goes down into the ship. And then eventually he goes down into the depths of the sea. When we run from God, when we live our lives in disobedience, it gets deeper and deeper and darker and darker. Chapter 1, verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was threatened to break up. That word hurled there, it's the same word that you would use for like throwing a javelin or throwing a stone. And I love that imagery. God actually takes a storm and throws it at the ship, right? Then every person on that ship and every product on that ship and the ship itself is in danger of being lost. Last week I said to you that sin never reaps a profit. It always has a cost. Sin never reaps a profit. It always has a cost. The storm is the cost. And it's the same way in our lives. Sometimes, and it's important that you hear that word, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, the storms that you are experiencing are a direct result of your disobedience before God. And when storms of disobedience come, there is always, listen to me, church, there is always collateral damage, right? The sailors on the ship are fighting for their lives because of Jonah's sin, right? The cargo on the ship is being lost. Their personal possessions are being thrown overboard because of Jonah's sin. Jonah is self-obsessed. He wants what he wants. He doesn't really care what God wants. And here's what we need to understand. Sin is always rooted in self-obsession. Sin is always an act of selfishness. I want what I want, and I don't care what God wants, and I don't care what happens to the people around me. For instance, as a husband and as a father, I cannot sit in front of my computer and, and engage in watching pornography and still have a genuine concern for Meg or a genuine concern for my children or a genuine concern for this church, for that matter. There is 
consequences to sin. There is fallout. There is collateral damage in sin. I journeyed for a few decades, as a matter of fact, with a young man who was addicted to heroin. And when he had seasons of being clean, we would often meet and we would have breakfast together. And he would say to me all the time, I don't know what it matters. I'm only hurting myself. That is a lie from the pit of hell. What about his parents? What about his siblings? What about his friends? What about the community? Sin always brings about collateral damage. It just does. When we know what we're supposed to do and we willfully go the opposite direction, there will all, we will always, don't miss this, we will always experience storms and there will always be collateral damage. But the fact is Jonah doesn't care. As the sailors are up top of the ship fighting for their lives, throwing their valuable possessions and all of the cargo over the side, he's down in the bottom of the ship fast asleep. And eventually the captain goes down and says to him for the second time in the story, arise, wake up, Jonah, and ask him, what's the deal? What's going on? Eventually Jonah comes up and talks to his shipmates and they discover that Jonah says to them, I worship the God who made the sea. Imagine that moment. As the sea is about to protect them, I worship the God who made the sea. And by the way, I'm running from him. <laughs> right? And if you read it, you can see they're exasperated. They're like, what? What have you done to us? What? What should we do, they say. And he says, just throw me overboard. Right? Just throw me in the sea. It's, it's your only hope. And I love the fact that they don't do it. Like, I'm pretty sure when I'm reading the story, I'm like, you're out of here. <laughs> like, like, you know what I mean? But, but they don't. It says they try with all of their might to row the ship, to get the ship ready, but they can't. Until they, not until they reach the absolute end of their rope. And there is no other choice. Then they grab Jonah and they throw him into the sea. I want you to notice something if you go back and you read this. Notice when the storm first starts, it says that the sailors cried out to their gods. It's plural. They were Greek probably. They were... Uh, you know, spiritual people, but they had false gods and they were all, whatever God you have right now, cry out to your God, we need to be saved. And then Jonah tells them that he worships the Lord, the God who made the sea. And then it says, they cried out to Yahweh, the God. And then after they throw him into the sea and the the storm calms, look what it says in verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord, L-O-R-D, all capital means Yahweh, the Lord exceedingly, And they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They became followers of Yahweh in Jonah's disobedience, in his comical way of behaving, an entire group of men on the ship become followers of Yahweh. But back to Jonah, he's sinking deeper and deeper. Verse 17, but the Lord appointed the Lord chose, the Lord predestined a fish. I, when I read this this week, I, I got thinking about, like he was probably growing this fish up. You get a little extra so you can get a little bigger because I got a big job for you. Like there was no moment where he's like, crap, they just threw him over the side. Oh, I just said crap in church. I'll get a letter for that one. It's dkempton at gracewire.com. Anyway, 
They're like, oh man, God wasn't surprised. He knew that he was going to get thrown into the sea. He knew that he was going to need a, 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 this, this fish. So he appointed a fish. He chose a fish. He made a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And in this terrifying uncomfortable. I think one of the problems with the story is we heard it as kids and like, you know, Pinocchio, like, I don't think it was like that. Like, I don't, I don't think they were just like hanging out and there was a little candle on the table. Do you, Pinocchio, you guys didn't watch Pinocchio? I know that's not the same story, but that is where they stole it from. Anyway, it was terrifying. It was super uncomfortable. He had reached the depths of his, of his difficulties. He'd finally reached the point where he, he knew this was it. Right, and look at chapter 2, verse 2. It says, I called out to the Lord. Out of my distress, he answered me. And out of the belly of soul, I cried. And you heard my voice. After three days, the fish spits Jonah up. And Jonah has another encounter with God. This is chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, there's that word again, arise, wake up. Go to Nineveh, the great city. And call out against it the message that I tell you. And so don't miss this. Begrudgingly, he goes. He doesn't go willing. Well, he goes willingly, but he goes begrudgingly for sure. The text tells us that Nineveh was so large that it took three days to walk from one side of the city to the other. I was trying to figure out how far that would be. It's probably the equivalent of from here to Port Huron. Right? That's a pretty big city. Right, and Jonah begins his walk and, and, and he begins his message, verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That's the message. Not a long sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And he only gets a third of the way through the city. Right? There's still two-thirds of the way to go. He's a third of the way, and look what happens. This is uh, chapter 3, verse 5. It says, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And then the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, which is a sign of humility. He's, he's, he's taking off his royal robe and becoming one of the people. He covered himself in sackcloth and sat in the ashes and he issued a proclamation and published it throughout all of Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out, to, call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways, from the violence that is in his hands. And who knows, who knows, just maybe... God will turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Church, God always responds to humble repentance. Always. God always responds to humble repentance. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they had did, what God saw, what they did, how they had turned from their evil ways. You remember a few weeks ago I talked about repentance. Repentance is the act of turning in the other direction. When he saw that they were going this way and they were willing to turn and go the right way, they repented. It says God relented of disaster that he said that he would do to them and he did not do it. Chapter four. But this displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. I love this book. 
I just love the way it's written. I love the, the contrast of emotions, right? Like, like we have all this repentance and then Jonah is just angry. He's angry. And he says to God, I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were going to be merciful to those people. Beware in your spirit when you say to yourself, those people. And God asks him a question. He says, do you do well to be angry? It's a great question for all of us to ponder. Do you do well to be angry? Is your anger really helping you? Now be careful with the question. I've been around the church for a long time, and sometimes people will justify their anger as righteous anger. Well, I'm allowed to be angry at those people because those people are bad people. If anybody had a right to have some righteous anger, it was probably Jonah towards the people of Nineveh. But God still asked him, do you do well to be angry? And then there's the other one where people just justify their anger because, you know, Jesus got angry. How about that scene in the temple where he turned all the tables? Jesus was angry. I was like, well, you're not Jesus. <laughs> right? You might as well just leave that one to him. But pretty much the question still applies. Do you do well to be angry? Is it helping you in any possible way? Anger is a cancer. Anger destroys you and the people around you. And here's the deal. It is impossible to keep your anger localized. What do I mean by that? I mean, if you really are angry at your boss and your job, you are going to be angry at your kids and your wife. If you're really angry at school, you're going to be angry with your classmates. We don't have the ability to compartmentalize our anger. Anger is anger, and it spills out all over the place. And then the story gets even stranger. Jonah goes up on a hillside to sulk. Right? And, and he's sitting on this hillside sulking because God was merciful to those people. And God provides a plant. And one day God provides a plant for shade. And Jonah is happy because I have shade. And then in the same that night, the same next day, the plant dies. And now Jonah is back to being in the scorching sun. And guess what? He's angry again. And God asks him a second time, verse 9, do you do well to be angry? Here's a little free tip. Not really part of the sermon, but it's a good one to hold on to. If God asks you the question twice, you should probably pay attention. <laughs> right? Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And this is where we're left. Like, this is where the story ends. Jonah on a hill, sulking and angry at God. And it begs the question, like, what happened? What happened to the people of Nineveh? What happened to Jonah? Well, we know what happened to the people of Nineveh. They converted. They became followers of Yahweh. Somebody asked me after the first service, like, how did that happen? Like, he only said one sentence. That, yeah, that's the miracle of the story. 120,000 people said yes to God because Jonah, in his disobedience, walked a third of the way through the city saying, 40 days, you're all going down. 
But we know that their conversion was real. How do we know? Because Jesus says to the leaders in Israel when he was on the earth walking as as a man, he said to them, the people of Nineveh will stand in judgment over this generation. What does that mean? It means they're going to be there. They're going to be in heaven. You're going to meet people from Nineveh when you go to heaven. They're there. They're going to stand and see the judgment take place. And what about Jonah? What happens to Jonah? Well, here's the deal. We know he doesn't stay up on the hill because sometime, somewhere along the way, he climbs down and he writes this book, which I actually think is a sort of confession. I don't think Jonah is painting a good picture of himself. It's pretty self-effacing. I think it's a beautiful picture of leadership where he says, hey, let me tell you the story of how I got it wrong about those people. Right? And he writes the story and here we are reading his story. It's a beautiful picture of Humility. Something shifted in his understanding that allowed him to sit and, and write this book that we've been mulling over all week. Last week I said we are all Gomer. This week I would say to you that in some way we should all be able to relate to Jonah in one way or the other. Jonah's story is our story. I always struggle with how much of my personal story to share in a sermon, I have this really close friend who lives out of state, and uh, he says to me, I hate it when pastors share their story. I just, just tell me about the Bible. I don't really care what's going on with you, right? He's very kind about it. Well, maybe not so kind, but anyway. So with him in mind, I'm going to tell you a little bit of my story. Sorry, buddy. So there's no single character in the Bible uh, that I relate to more than Jonah, When I was 17 years old, uh, in church, in youth group actually, I heard a very clear calling to be a pastor. Never even questioned the calling. But because I was rebellious or selfish, uh, maybe even scared, I I don't know if I was too scared back then, uh, but for whatever reason, mostly just rebellion, I said no. And I began to run from the presence of God. I never stopped believing. I never even stopped questioning whether or not I had this calling. But man, I ran. For 15 years, I ran from God. And it was in that season that I bought a business. It was in that season that I met Meg and that we got married. It was in that season that I uh, had three of my four kids. Uh, Jake came after I came back to Jesus. But uh, we began to have a family And because I was running from God, I was making a lot of bad decisions. I wasn't a good husband. I wasn't a good father. And frankly, our lives were spinning out of control. I was going deeper and deeper and deeper, and things were getting darker and darker and darker. And God hurled a storm. I say it all the time, but Megan and my relationship, it it couldn't have gotten any worse. I've never sat with a couple at Grace and thought, oh, God can't fix that one. Our marriage was so broken. I was angry. I was selfish. Meg was miserable. It was during those darkest days, Meg would say to me, we need to go back to church. We need to have God in our relationship. And I would say to her, you have no idea what you're talking about. 
If I go back to church, then all of this goes away. The business goes away. The money goes away. The toys go away. And she would say, that's so stupid. Because that's how we talked to each other back then. (laughs) You see, for me to go back to church was to face the calling from when I was 17. And here's the amazing thing. When I look back on my story, God never gave up on me. Even when I was running from God, he was taking me to the places he wanted me to be. It was during that season that God brought me to Detroit and broke my heart for the city. It was during that season that God began to show me social injustices all around me. It was during that season he really began to open my eyes to racial prejudice, mostly my own. God was preparing me for what I was eventually going to do, even when I was running from him, even when I was giving him the Heisman. (coughs) I say it all the time, but the greatest miracle of my life besides Jesus and my salvation is when my wife entered the doors of this church. Meg was raised Catholic. I don't know that she'd spent any time in a Protestant church for much time. She was driving down Maras, and she saw people walking into this church. She didn't know a single soul in this church. And she said, those people look happy. I want to be happy. And the next Sunday, she came to Grace. Catholic girls don't go to Protestant churches without somebody inviting them. And she sat in the back, and she heard the gospel, and she accepted Jesus. And I began to watch her. I began to watch her faith. I began to watch her attitude. I began to watch her change. And about six months after that, I'm not sure why, maybe it's the second miracle, I decided to go to church with her. And I walked into this church and I sat in the back of the old sanctuary and I heard God say, welcome home. You know, at that point, the marriage began to heal. It was a long journey. My relationship with my kids began to get better and better. And in God's timing, I came on staff here at the church. This church, 27 years ago, that Meg walked into and found Jesus. Look, we were desperate for any thread of hope. And we found it in Jesus. We found it here at Grace Community Church. So when I say I relate to Jonah, it's no self-aggrandizing way, I I identify with Jonah. He was a head case. Like, he's a total screw-up, and so am I. And God is gracious, right? And God sees us, and he calls us to himself. There's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. God's calling you to have fierce conversations with those people. And some of you don't even want to be in small group with those people. Right? God is calling you to have fierce conversations with other people. And sometimes we just don't want to do it. And so we are disobedient. God calls us to go places and to do things that are hard. But he keeps calling and he keeps inviting there's a ton to glean from the book of Jonah. I taught Jonah six years ago. It was actually a six-week series. And I still don't think I covered everything that was in this book. So just having one sermon on it 
We've barely scratched the surface. But this is the message of Jonah. God is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Amen is right. God is a gracious God. God is merciful. Abounding in steadfast love. If you think about it, in God's sovereignty, he prepared a fish to swallow Jonah, to save him from death. In God's sovereignty, he sent his only son to save us from death. God is abounding in steadfast love. This morning, we get to come to the communion table. If you remember last week, I talked a lot about the fact that we have a tendency to forget. We have a tendency to forget the love of God, the hand of God over and over in the Old Testament. Remember, remember your God. Remember what your God did for you. And there's a warning. Bad things happen when you forget God. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he he institutes this this wonderful discipline. He says, every time you come to the table, remember me. Why? Because we have a tendency to forget. So if you didn't get elements when you came in, I encourage you to jump out of your seat. Come down and grab one out of the basket here. Um, If you don't know, there's a little wafer in the front. There's like two little pieces. You take the cellophane off, you can get to the wafer, then you open up for the drink. We're going to take communion together. But the scriptures tell us that before we come to the table, a person ought to examine themselves. So I'm just going to give you two or three minutes as Ron plays, uh, just to examine yourself. What do you need to leave here today, and what do you need to take with you? Maybe as I was talking, you were thinking about the places where you were running. Maybe you were thinking about those people and you just need to confess that back to God, that you have anger, you have resentment. Maybe it's towards a family member or the other side of the family or a people group. What do you need to leave and what do you need to take with you? Just spend a minute asking God those questions and then we'll take the the communion together.
I was just thinking about a passage talking about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. It says that he showed them the full extent of his love. On the night that he was going to be betrayed, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, he showed them the full extent of his love. The gospel is that Jesus came so that you could have life, not that you could do anything to earn it. You couldn't do anything to earn your salvation. Jesus came and he gave his life so that you could be one with the Father. It was that very night, the night that he was betrayed, knowing all that was before him, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Every time you take it, remember me. It says in the same way he took the cup, Elijah's cup, the cup of sacrifice, a cup that for 1,400 years had represented the coming Messiah. It wasn't some random cup. It was the cup. And he said, this is my blood shed for you, a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins every time you drink it. Remember me. Lord, I pray that we would remember how gracious you are, how merciful you are in your steadfast love. That while we were sinners, while we were your enemies, Christ came for us. Help us to know, help us to remember, not intellectually, but deep in our spirit. Help us to go from this room and share the message of salvation. Amen. Scriptures tell us that when they had taken the meal that they sang together, and so Evie's going to come and she's going to lead us in a little bit of a song. So if you just stand and sing with us, that would be great. Goodness of God. Oh, I'm 
I'm gonna sing of the goodness of God. Amen. So there's a group that met before the 11 o'clock service in the chapel. Half hour before each service, we meet in the chapel to pray. We believe that God still speaks. So we ask God, what do you want to say today? What do you want to say to your people? And as they listen, this is what they heard, that there's somebody suffering uh, with some knee problems. We would love to pray for you. If someone is feeling extremely isolated, we want you to know that you're not alone. But we'd love to pray over you as well. And there's someone that needs hope and they want a fresh encounter with the Holy Spirit. If you have a physical need, an emotional need, a little bit of both, we encourage you to call the number on your screen or you can come on down to the front and we will pray for you. Uh, God bless you. Join us next week as we continue in the Minor Prophets. Yeah. How are you?